That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about exploitation films, shall we? As long as there have been movies, there's been an audience for something outside of the mainstream, a taste for forbidden fruit that could not be satisfied in the neighborhood movie house. We're not talking about pornography, though that certainly played a part in celluloid history. But once there were boundaries placed on movies by the arbiters of taste at the time, there has been a desire to take a peek under the rock, to sample the unsavory, to get a taste of something we couldn't get through the normal channels. Before the Hayes Code was established by government censor William Hayes in 1930, movies of the day were not afraid to get a little racy. But this was about more than that. When the drive-in movie was created in New Jersey in 1933, there was established an intimate private screening room, the family automobile. Back in the 1930s and 40s, an underground of exploitation films began to be established. Hucksters would take a battered print of a sexual education film, Mom and Dad, for instance, directed by William Bodine and produced and distributed by King of Sleaze, Kroger Bab, and they would set up four-wall screenings in rural cinemas. There would be two shows a night, one just for men, one just for women, and would be presented by a phony doctor in his white coat, assisted by so-called nurses who sold books and pamphlets on sex ed for some extra cash. Those movies were the only way you could see actual sexual intercourse on screen, other than in smoky secret back rooms in somebody's cousin's friend's house on a rickety 16-millimeter projector. The social warning films like Reefer Madness and Lurid Sex Slave documents like Child Bride and Sex Madness could show you more than you ever expected to see, all in the name of moral goodness and bad deeds punished at the end. There's always been a desire to see forbidden fruit, and with the major studios overtaking the film industry from the beginning, films were made to appeal to the widest possible audience. But with the advent of television and renegades like Roger Corman, Sam Arkoff, Ed Wood, and other pioneers of under-the-rug cinema, brought the movies of the so-called gutter into the local theaters, offering the monsters, the nudity, the crudity that you wouldn't find on NBC or at the Rialto on Main Street. 42nd Street in New York became ground zero for the unseemly stuff and gave birth to an army of renegade artists who actually created films of great value, energy, and yes, even artistry in a disrespected world. One of the kings of 42nd Street in the 1980s was William Lustig, whose film Maniac, remade recently by none other than Elijah Wood's company, was one of those who mastered this subgenre with that film and others like Vigilante and Maniac Cop, but has also created a video company, Blue Underground, that lovingly restores and releases known and unknown classics of the genre. We'll talk with Bill about his adventures in the screen trade right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Mr. Lustig, 
Bill, you had a very early beginning. What what was what tempted you about the movie business? How did you get involved in the excitement of film? Well, um, when I was growing up, I uh, I had a um, I had muscular dystrophy, and I uh, in my teen years I was uh, on crutches and uh, on an, in a wheelchair. And uh, as a result, uh, my mother used to drive me to the matinees, um, and I was able to. I, I started watching a lot of movies. And this was in the Bronx, where you? No, were this out. was in New Jersey. Oh, in New Jersey. Yeah, okay. the Bronx. I was out of the Bronx at eleven. Ah. At this age, I was around sixteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, and I began going to see a lot of uh, a lot of matinees, and um, and uh, so. Uh, I uh, I really started to fall in love with movies, and I remember it was in the late '60s, where I, I I mean it it felt to me as though every week when I went to the movies I saw an event, uh, movies like Bullet, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, uh, Dirty Dozen, uh, you know, I was a big fan of the World War II movies, the um, uh, the James Bond films. So it sounds like Mid- action is what really hooked uh, you. Well, action, horror, you know, horror. Uh, I was, um, I, I, I discovered Dario Argento and Mario Bava when I went to, uh, when I started going to 42nd Street, which was in uh, 1969 is when I really started to frequent uh, 42nd Street. I was around 14 uh, around that time, 14 years old is when I discovered those guys. And they let you in. <laughs> oh, they didn't care. If you had the money in hand. They, yeah, 42nd Street. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, was no no, rules. there was no rated R or X on uh, 42nd Street. Everyone, everyone was welcome. And, um, yeah, and that's, that's – uh, and uh, I was never – it was funny. I was never a fan of the California horror films like the ones – made by Roger Corman and uh, Crown International. I always gravitated to European horror. That's where I really found my love of horror. And um, Do you remember the first horror film that really hooked you? Well, yes, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte ah, when I was okay. a kid. Yeah, I remember that one. Robert uh, Aldrich. Exactly, yeah. when, when that head rolled down the stairs. Yeah, I remember yeah. I was with my friends. We had winter coats on. And we used them as like a tent. And when the scary parts come, we drop the winter coats to cover our eyes. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool when Bruce Dern gets, you know, yeah, his well, hand chopped off at the beginning. was at the height of hag horror after uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. I saw that much later, actually. Yeah. Then on TV, I saw a Psycho, which mm-hmm. freaked me out. And, uh, and, and one film that's continued to haunt me. From the first time I had seen it uh, in the middle of the night on New York television, Carnival of Souls. Mm-hmm. That film to me, when people ask me what's the scariest horror film, that film to me just never fails to you know fails to scare me. And I this just, is a movie from the 1960s, and it was made in in the Midwest, and the guy had never made a movie before. And after Kirk Harvey, and never once since. Yeah. So what was it about? It had kind of a Romero quality about it. Well. It's because I guess it was made um, outside of any world that we know, right? And um, and it's hard to quite put your finger on it. There's an other worldliness about mm. the movie, even in its use of um, sound effects that not are, that are not quite synchronized. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's it's shortcomings actually work towards its effectiveness. Yeah, the simplicity of the makeup is 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 frightening in that film. But then there are these images of the of them under the water and then mm-hmm. rising into that abandoned carnival. All these things just really were very spooky for me. Well, just finding an incredible location like an abandoned carnival yeah. is that's step one. Mm-hmm. And knowing it doesn't feel like a Hollywood movie. No, there's nothing about it. Yeah. Nothing about it that feels Hollywood. I, I, I just absolutely, and I've watched it repeatedly. I watched it just a year ago. And I, because I love showing it to people. Right. It's, that's a great one. And, uh, but anyway, getting back to 42nd Street, um, you know, it's funny. Most people say 42nd Street, sex, and violent movies. And true, there were a lot of sex and violent movies. But there was one theater dedicated to playing westerns. Wow. And they played nothing but double features of westerns of all years. You could have gone there in the 70s and watched The Searchers and, wow. you know, in other Hollywood westerns. Uh, there was another theater that played art house movies. I saw mm-hmm. Fellini's Terracon for mm. the first time at the Apollo Theater on 42nd Street. Wow. So it wasn't just horror and and action and 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 uh, and sex movies. By the time I saw it in the eighties, it was <laughs> it kind of well, changed I, I, a lot. Well, so. maybe I I I I think it was kind of the same in the eighties mm. where they had. I mean, they, they, when I think about it on forty on Forty Second Street proper, there really was only the Rialto one and two that played sex movies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, the lyric played whatever the latest exploitation film on a double feature. Right. Um, and the New Amsterdam played more Hollywoodish movies. Right. I mean, can you imagine? I saw Love Story on 42nd Street. I can't. That's a different kind of thing you expect from the title Love Story on 42nd exactly. Street. Yeah. Exactly. But that was, it was, it was, you know, I, I could see Love Story on 42nd Street. I mean, that was the world. It had all kinds of movies there, you know. Well, the grit of 42nd Street had a great deal of influence on the movies that you made. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so when was the decision made for you that I want to make these things? I don't just want to see them because you were a student of the Well, I, I, I mean, I can recall um, being in junior high school, pounding my forehead into a desk saying, I don't want to be here. I want to be out making movies. And it was always my desire to make movies. I was very fortunate that a friend of of our family um, was uh, um, making independent movies mm-hmm. in New York in the '60s, really bad ones, you know. Right. But but he was anything making we them. might know. Nah, none that became famous. There was one. Um, I mean, he was really. They were really. They were really misguided movies. <laughs> what do you mean? He by was that? interesting. Yeah. He was an interesting character. Well, his name was Peter Petrella. He went by the name Peter Savage. And um, he was a mob guy. He had a dress factory in the Bronx. That's what he. That's how he made his money. Uh-huh. But he also was an aspiring filmmaker. And we would talk about movies, and he would tell me things like, "Well, you know, 
he would he would reference movies like Hiroshima Hiroshima Moore right. as an example of of economy filmmaking and that you don't <laughs> need a lot of money and you know and you can do things simplistically and and uh, it was it was fascinating. So he had high art aspirations. It was a guy talking with a very good fella's voice. But talking about things like <laughs> like Fellini movies and, and things incredible. like that, and he was smart enough that he, um, my uncle is Jake Lamata, uh, of the subject of Raging Bull. We were going to get to that, and yes. and Pete was the catalyst for Raging Bull. Really, how did he, that come about? He came about because, well, how I knew Pete was through my uncle. Mm-hmm. He was always my he had admired my uncle, and uh, and. Uh, uh, what he did was in the 60s, he, uh, I don't know if he financed it or whatever, but he created a book called Raging Bull. Total bullshit book. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, kind of movies, Prince of Legend. Yeah. It was a bullshit book. It's, it's sort of like the Warner Brothers 30s version of crime. <laughs> that you know these guys, they did things that were bad, but they, but they had hearts of gold. <laughs> right. It was that kind of a book, you right. know? Whereas Scorsese and De Niro responded to the real story of my uncle mm-hmm. and, and basically tossed out the book. Right. And, um, but getting back to that, uh, Pete um, uh, saw Mean Streets and said, those are the people that should make Raging Bull. Right. And he's the one who got the book to Scorsese and De Niro. De Niro responded to the character and convinced uh, Scorsese to do the movie. Well, Mean Streets was a very gritty, very real life on the streets in New York yeah. movie. Yeah. And Raging Bull is a very New York movie as well. And it's obvious why someone would see Mean Streets and then say, this is the guy to do Raging Bull. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's obvious. But, you know, at the time, he was maybe one of the first people in to, to Scorsese and De Niro. He, he really... Uh-huh. He really was. He, this is the direction it needs to go in, right? Is with because he recognized that Scorsese spoke with a real voice. There were many mob movies that were made around that time, mm-hmm. but Scorsese had the ring of authenticity, right, in his movie. Well, the early seventies had uh, the Godfather launched a whole mm-hmm. whole list of of crime movies, but Scorsese doing that so. Did they get involved in Raging Bull before Taxi Driver? Oh, yeah. In fact, so Pete's in Taxi Driver. At the very beginning, there's a brief montage of Scorsese uh, driving around picking up people. Mm-hmm. And one of the people he picks up is Pete. And Pete's the guy with the silver hair with the hooker. Right. And he goes, you know, you do the right thing. I'll take care of you. You know, he says to the hooker, you might remember that. <laughs> yes. And that's that. that's Pete. And yeah, they loved him, and he also appears, of course, in Raging Bull. Right. And, so uh, this took years of development oh, to get there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they started getting projects. Also, one of the th- one of the uh, openings, uh, one of the opportunities I had during the Raging Bull process is at one point De Laurentiis was going to produce it. Uh-huh. And uh, through uh, so Pete got an office at De Laurentiis's office at the at the Gulf and Western Building in, in Columbus Circle in New York, and um, and uh, it was through there that I got to work on movies like Death Wish, where I was able to sink the dailies. Right. So you and were a PA. And I was then a an PA. Assistant. Wow. And a movie called 
crazy Joe that no one has ever oh, yeah. seen. Yeah. Not Joe. Not, no, I know. Not, Peter not the Peter. It's the Joe Gallo movie. Right. And, uh, and so I was able to uh, work my way in there. Mm-hmm. And um, and and the sticky point with De Niro, I mean, with 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 De Laurentiis was the insistence insistence on De Niro and Scorsese to shut down production for several months while while uh, De Niro gained weight. Right. And 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 you know, De Laurentiis, can't we do it? We put we put pads on him. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we go. You know, not when you're working with De Niro, gonna, and we can't. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we can't. We can't carry them on payroll. The crew on payroll <laughs> while he's out gaining weight. I mean, De, De Laurentiis just couldn't get his mind around that idea. Yeah. So I, it all fell apart over uh, there. But, uh, so it took until 1980 for Raging Bull to get made, yeah. Um, actually, it was made just before that. I think it was 78, 79. Okay. I, I, they were already in pre-production when Scorsese, when um, De Niro was doing uh, 1900 with Bertolucci. Right, yeah. I, um, I had an office at 1600 Broadway at the time, yeah. and, um, which, um, uh, which was near Magno Sound. Oh, where, yeah. Where De Niro was dubbing. Uh, 1990. All of the post-production sound was in New York was done at Magno on the quality pictures. There. Yes, and also uh, there was Tetra, which was the big dubbing company at the mm-hmm. time. Anyway, um, uh, uh, my uncle and and did, uh, used to meet De Niro at my office. Oh, nice! And I found it fascinating because De Niro, very quiet, very he's the quietest guy in the room. Mm. But as soon as my uncle would start talking. I'd see De Niro just very subtly go into his pocket and start a recording. That's interesting. And you know, that's that's how he that's how he did his research because he's he was spot on. So the movie, in addition to just portraying the character of your uncle, was the movie of, as truthful and honest as uh, as you knew of your uncle's life. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I one of my scariest visions as a kid was when I was in the Bronx, um, my aunt Vicky, um, uh, my grandmother lived with us and his mother. Uh, she kind of brought me up when I was, when I was a kid and, um, uh, his, uh, wife Vicky came to my grandmother and it was the first time I saw a, a beautiful woman, yeah. uh, in a bra, uh, in only a bra showing black and blue marks to my Ooh. To my grandmother of where Jake had hit her and stuff. Ooh. Ooh. And I remember them standing in the kitchen. I could vision, I have a vision of it to this day. Right. Uh, you know, the kitchen of a, an apartment in the Bronx when you see this, Ugh. it was just very scary. The Kathy Moriarty character. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Um, well, let's come around to your career. Okay. Let's see. So from, from being a PA, who's Billy Bag? That was the porno name that I used. What happened was, um, between gigs, I would drive an auto parts truck in New Jersey. Uh-huh. And the thing I would tell the auto parts people were, look, I'm not going to carry that those dirty spark plugs. Put them in a bag and I'll carry them. <laughs> so my nickname was Billy Bag. <laughs> the diva. Yeah, the diva <laughs> who didn't want to get his hands dirty in the auto parts business. Right. So what I, so they, these guys on Saturday afternoon used to get beer and pizza and watch 
uh, eight millimeter porno films. They closed down the auto parts store and they'd watch eight millimeter porno films. So the smoke filled room we talked about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they, these guys did that. And uh, so when I did my, my first one, I decided to use the name. So all the guys at the gas stations and everything in New Jersey would know that I made the movie. <laughs> So it was an auteur signal. It was an auteur to gas station and auto parts guys in New Jersey. (laughs) So was that your first opportunity to actually write and direct a a movie? Yeah, I mean, that was porno. porno? Well, directing, I I directed parts of a lot of Pete Savage's movies Uh in the 70s. What happened was after the release of Deep Throat, there was a gold rush. And the gold rush was for little money, sex on the screen, you could make a killing. And that was that was everybody's dream. So all these guys got into that. And Deep Throat actually became the first uh, above ground mainstream porno yeah. that that made porno briefly respectable. Well, besides the, the that questionable respectability, was a ton of money. A ton of money. I mean, these guys they were making so much money they would send a guy to each city to to collect the money each night from the box office cash. Cash. It was cash. Right. Or what they used to call Mr. Green. Mr. Green. Even and, um, and so uh, they would collect the cash and that, that was it. So Pete, it was so, so funny because when Pete set out to make porno, he had to incorporate things that he, would, that he was studying. So one of the pornos that I did the most work on was a one called Sylvia, uh-huh. which was based on Sybil. Remember Sybil, oh, the multi-personality? Yeah, the personality, personality seven right. personality. So he did the porno version of Sybil <laughs> because Pete fancied himself a psychiatrist in a way. He always would talk about psychology and stuff. He would read, he'd read up on it. Maybe he even attended some classes about psychology. Again, as I tell you, he was a straight out mob guy. And, and, you know, aspirations of art, he had all these things that were such contradictions. You know, he wasn't the, you know, what they would call the Gavoon from the street. But yet this guy (laughs) was a tough guy. He was, nobody played with him. On one of his movies, I remember him, you know, punching out a Teamster. Oh, my God. You know, that's how he was. At least they had Teamsters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it was a Teamster that came around to cause havoc because he didn't have Teamsters. Okay. (laughs) So he he said, really? (laughs) You know, and, and took care of them. But um, anyway, so he was your mentor. He was my mentor, and you learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from him. And one of the things I'm most proud of is, I mean, one of the things like typical Pete. I go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I go to his office. And I tell him, the, I just saw the greatest movie. I love it. It's unbelievable. This he, is 74? Uh, whatever it was. The date it was released. I, yeah. was, I went to his 74. office and he opens up the Daily News and he says, look, this movie you love it has zero stars in the Daily News. Oh. So he, he always kind of, kind of dampened my thing about horror films mm-hmm. and the kinds of movies that I loved. Um, and he got to see me make and release Maniac. Oh. And... I w- he felt so proud. My name was above the title for whatever reason. Wow. I had no, 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 I'm talking about in a local, he lived in Long Island. Mm-hmm. And there was a theater in Valley Stream that for some unknown reason um, put my name above the title. I mean, I was no John Carpenter. I was a nobody. No, but it was William but it was like, Lustig. But it was right there where he could wow. see it. He was like, he couldn't believe it. 
suddenly he saw you in a different light. Absolutely. Not the guy who loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre and other such disrespected movies, but a guy whose name was above the title. And he was, and, and I, I know I impressed him. And I, it made me feel good because here for so many years, it wasn't just, it, there wasn't any revenge involved or any, it, it was more of just, I, I felt great because of all he had done for me. I'll give you an example. He said to me, if you want to uh, really be, if you want to be, if you're serious about being in uh, a director, you should go to NYU like Scorsese did. You should uh-huh. go to NYU. I had no money. My right. family had no money. I know that feeling. Yeah. He opened up a checkbook. He handed me a check. Wow. He said, you go there. You go to NYU. Whatever it costs, I'll pay for it. Wow. And you did? And I did. How fantastic. At the time, it was like 900 bucks. It wasn't, yeah. but, but it was still, still 900 bucks. A guy from the street. You know, I, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, who does that? He did it for me. And, and I was so happy that I was able to, in a sense, repay him and show him that I, you know, that he was able to, that yeah. what he had done for me. Well, it's like showing your dad you did good. Yeah. And yeah. he was proud. Yeah, no, it was great. It was a great feeling. I was in Cannes with him uh, when uh, Maniac premiered there, but it was also coincided with Raging Bull being uh, being touted in Cannes. Um, it's just by coincidence, my post-production on Maniac was in the same facility, Transaudio, as, as, as Raging Bull. Wow. So it was just really weird. But anyway, I was in Cannes with Pete, and I and it was just such a great feeling when he saw what he had accomplished on a big billboard in Cannes, yeah. Raging Bull. It says in the, in the main credits, it has produced an association with Peter Savage. Wow, all that, yeah, it was great. That's pretty amazing. Well, Maniac was your first big step. This was the first yeah. William Lustig movie. And so, tell me how that came about, how the financing came about, how you put that movie together. I met Joe Spinell um, working as a PA on a movie called The Seven Ups. Uh, Joe right. was with, one of the thugs with Roy Scheider, and, Roy Scheider, and, and, and Tony LaBianco. Movie, yeah. uh, uh, but uh, those two guys were—they didn't want. I couldn't come up to. I couldn't say hello to them. Oh. Uh, whereas you know, Phil D'Antoni was a great guy, right. and the director, the yeah. director. But Joe Spinell in particular, we began chatting. He loved horror films. I love horror films. A bond was created. For many years after that, between gigs, Joe was living in New York at his mother's place in Queens. He'd call me up, Bill, Hollywood Hillside Strangler is playing on 42nd Street, you know, at 3.30 in the morning. I'd get dressed. I'd meet him down there. We'd go watch these, these movies in the middle of the night. And... I kept saying my aspiration was to make a horror film, and so was Joe. He wanted to star in a horror film. After all the mob things he'd done, well, because he was typecast in so many Well, actually, that. funny enough, Joe was not really typecast. Yes, oh, really? he made his mark as Willie Chi-Chi in Godfather, right. but it, Stay Hungry, he right, plays right. a southern businessman. Wow, I'd forgotten uh, about 92 that. 92 yeah. in the Shade. Yeah. Um, you know, even Taxi Driver, he's the guy at the beginning who gives De Niro the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he was a memorable, uh, big big Wednesday. He's the psychiatrist. <laughs> I'm an extra in that movie. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> well, you remember Joe is the psychiatrist? Yeah, yeah. With yeah. Gary Busey? Yeah. So the industry did not typecast him. He was in Sorcerer. Yeah. Playing one of the truck drivers. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite movies. It's a great yeah. movie. Yeah, and he was loved by every director. 
who used him. Well, he was quite the character actor, you know. He, but you really gave him his first leading role. In I this did, movie. and it was like it was like one of these things that I I didn't really think about it that way. It just right. felt inevitable. As the guy was right for the part, he was right for the part. But more importantly, he created the part. Yeah, he he was one of the, you know he really wrote the part based on. You know, the 70s was the golden age of serial killers. We had these really colorful, you know, John Wayne Gacy and, and Ted Bundy and Henry Lee Lucas and and uh, 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 the guy, Son of Sam, I forget his name. Right, all, all the three-name all, guys. Yeah, all, the, yeah. all these guys who were really colorful. You know, we don't have that today. Right. Today we have the white trash guy down the street, mur- rapes and murders a, a 14-year-old girl, buries all her right. in his backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Very boring. These guys had panache. I mean, John Wayne, John, I mean, Henry Lee, uh, John Wayne Gacy, you know, he the was clown a clown. painting. Yeah, he but he was a, also a, a clown, clown. At, the, yeah. at the kids' parties, yeah. out picking up boys at night, killing them and burying them under his house. Right. I mean, we don't hear about that anymore. No. You no. know, it's, 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 it's sad. Sad. So but, how did the idea come to be? Well, we decided uh, – well, we had developed some ideas for, for horror films, always more money than we could we could possibly raise. Right. Um, so finally, we uh, came up with this idea for Maniac, very minimalistic movie. Right. Um, we shot the movie out of frustration because we couldn't raise money from anybody else right. uh, for $48,000, 30000 wow. of which came from the money I had saved doing adult movies. Right. Uh, uh, 12000 came from Andy Garoni, and 6000 Joe signed over one of his checks from cruising. Wow. Wow. So with $48,000 in the bank, we decided, you know, fuck it. We're going to go out. We're going to make this movie because I always had the, I always had this thing in my head uh, that when the train leaves the station, that's when people want to jump on board. Right. It's right. getting that train out of the station. Well, the 48 grand got us the train out of the station. Nice. And we were able to shoot a few weeks of the movie. And um, and uh, uh, we kind of ran out of money, but we continued post-production. Caroline Monroe, by, by you know, the movie gods brought Caroline Monroe to New York, along with her husband, who was able to raise enough money for us to finish the movie. <laughs> and pay her. And, and pay her and, and put her in the movie. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was that. And we made, and we made and finished the movie. Uh, and, uh, uh, and um, it was a great experience. I mean, Joe was one of my best, I, I have to say of all the, in all the years of all the people I worked with, he was a really great collaborator. It was, it was strange. He had more confidence in me than I had in myself. Wow. He used to say, what do you think? Well, he really wanted to know. He was not, he didn't run over me, which I, which most, I hear a lot of times happens to first time directors. Oh, yeah. When they're yeah. working with somebody experienced. Mm-hmm. He didn't do it. I don't know if it was just his professionalism. I mean, because he, it, you know, he did drink and, and, and like to smoke weed right. while making the movie. Right. So, when you say professionalism, that was maybe his, his <laughs> failing on that. Right. But as far as respecting, having a, a respect for the director and what, what we were going to do, he, he was 100% on board. Well, I think you shared the vision too, right? Yes, we did. But it's all these things that I look back at. I didn't, I didn't kind of realize it at the time. I didn't realize until I heard stories from other directors and mm. things how fortunate I was. 
to have somebody who was so supportive. I would just say that, you know, we would have conversations about the future of the movie. And Joe would go, no, this movie is important. This is a happening. Wow. We are making a happening. Those were his words. We are making a happening. And I go, Joe, if we could just play 42nd Street and Texas drive-ins and get our money back, I'll be happy. So tell me what happened when the film became such a success. It was immediate. Um, And it was all around the country all at once, right? All over the world. All around Actually, the world. it was in foreign so, that it first um, had its success. So did I, it open overseas before it opened in the States? Well, it was more that um, it wasn't necessarily on a retail level um, that we knew its success. It was on a, a, a level of selling it to right. the distributors. Right. We finished Maniac in April, end of April, just in the nick of time for the Cannes Film Festival. I literally carried the 35-millimeter Goldberg cases Wow. Uh, on the plane with me because I was fearful of shipping it. Mm-hmm. And we and we went to Cannes. And those are hefty mothers. <laughs> and they are hefty. And they were metal. And they were they were heavy. And um, I flew the print with Andy Garoni to Cannes, and Joe was with us. Right. And uh, uh, our sales agent very cleverly set the movie up. In the sm- and I wanted to be in a big theater because we had mixed the film uh, – uh, I had the good fortune of making a deal with a recording studio to mix the film in Dolby Stereo, which was kind of new at the time. Wow, yeah. that I mean, Star Wars was the first in 77, and you're talking 79, mm-hmm. 80, yeah? There were reasons it was a good – It was I was able to make a deal to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to give it its best foot forward in a stereo theater. At the wow. time, stereo was only in the big houses. Right. They weren't in the small houses as we have today. Right. The downtown big theaters. It was the big theaters in Cannes, uh, the big Olympia One Theater and all. Mm -hmm. So anyway, our sales agent very cleverly said, no, we're not going to put it in a big theater. We're going to put it in the smallest theater in Cannes. And I couldn't understand why. And we're going to do it at midnight. And, and and he also invited kids from a local school to come to the uh, theater. He wanted a full house. He wanted a full house, and he wanted the buyers surrounded by kids nice. and to get their reaction to the movie. It was brilliant. We walked in uh, uh, with an investment of $135,000, probably some other some debt, credit card debt and such <laughs> on top of that. Plus, we were faced with all the delivery items we had to. We we knew we had to make like right. IPs and things like that, and uh, so we probably had about oh two to three hundred thousand dollars that we that we were just hoping to recoup. Right. And we walked out of Cam with over a million dollars in contracts. Wow! From foreign sales, and that's not even counting North America. That was not counting North America. So we we burned the mortgage on the on the movie <laughs> out of out of the Cannes Film Festival before it, a foot of film was ever ever hit a theater screen. Wow! And uh, then we come to the states, and horror was big at the time. I mean, it was it was the it was the, I mean, it was all the big people watched it. As an example, at Universal, it was Ned Tannen who came to the screening of Maniac. Wow. Not some flunky. Yeah. It was Ned Tannen. <laughs> and, and there was a yeah. big editor. Who was the one who edited Jaws? Uh, that, that was... Um, Not Dee Dee Allen. Name? No, no. Oh. Uh, uh, oh, I went to... You know who I'm talking about. I went to her ceremony. Verna Fields. Verna Fields. Yeah. It was Verna Fields. She was their big it, production exec, yeah. Right. She was there with Ned Tannen watching Maniac. We yeah. And so all the heads of the studios 
we're watching our little movie. Maybe Amazing. it got scouted in Cannes. I don't know. I can't the, imagine the reaction of those people to that movie. <laughs> well, here's the funny part. There was a there was a, a, a distributor in New York. I'm going around to every single studio uh, set up by my by my producer's rep. I would go to I was going to Crown to AIP, uh, you know, New World, uh, yeah. New World Film Ventures, you know. You name it, I was going to all those places. Universal, guys, yeah. Columbia, yeah. there was and the big guys. yeah, all the big guys too, and um, and uh, so. Uh, but in the meantime, we keep getting phone calls uh, from a, a small company a few blocks from our office who wanted to see Maniac, yeah. a company called Analysis Film Corporation. They were kind of the Miramax of their day, ah. except that at that point they had only released movies like Lucino Visconti's *The Innocent*, right. uh, *My My Brilliant Career*. Art house. They, they were art house movie guys, right. and I said, Andy, I'm not going to spend for a screening for these guys. I'm not going to pop for like two, three hundred bucks to screen a movie <laughs> for an art house distributor. This right. is not a film that that's what they want. And so I'm continuing to go around. We're, we're getting offers. We're getting offers on the film. Uh, Roger Corman watched the first and last reel. <laughs> and his comment was, cut it to an R and I'll distribute it. Um, and I have all stories about all these people. But anyway, it was... Um, we'll get to those. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, Andy, I'm in, I'm in L.A. Andy's in New York. He says, Bill, these guys keep calling. They want to see the movie. I said, all right, let's show them the movie. In the middle of the movie, in, 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 in a true Hollywood fashion, in the middle of the movie, they call our producer's rep and they say, we'll top any offer you have on the movie. Holy shit. And wow, they put up, they put up a big chunk of dough for the United States rights to the film. Well, this With was right P &A after P &A Halloween commitment. and Friday the 13th, True. so you were riding the Dawn crest. Dawn of the Dead. Right, riding yeah. the crest. Oh, yeah, no, we were riding the crest, but these guys were like, we want this movie, we love it, we love it, we want the movie. And uh, and that was it. They topped they topped the offers. We they did a P and A commitment with us, and as well as give us a significant guarantee on the picture. And it was uh, it was very exciting. It was a very exciting period. And what was the resultant box office of Maniac? In the states, it was it was interesting because we got a lot of backlash. We got protesters yeah, and all I kinds of I want to talk about that, too. We did. Yeah. We had a lot of backlash. And as you know, in the film business, money is made in the first, uh, not the first two weeks in the theaters. They make money on the third, fourth, fifth week that your right. movie is in the theater because there's no longer advertising. Right. Well, the theater owners really bullied uh, analysis. Uh, what they did was they played for two weeks and then complained about the protesters. Mm -hmm. And their thing was, well, you guys don't have to live here. We do. Right. And they pulled the picture. So analysis, while the film grossed, um, net-wise, their advertising really uh, ate up the money mm. that the film that the film made. I mean, they made a profit, I think, to some degree. Our deal on Maniac was a gross deal over, I think it was two or two and a half million. Mm -hmm. So they got wow. to keep the first two or two and a half million dollars. I forget which number it was. And it would be then 50-50 after that. No deductions whatsoever mm -hmm. of the of the film rental. Right. So, and uh, 
And that was that was it. And you've ended up you have you own it a hundred percent. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so you're a businessman as well as a fine filmmaker. Well, <laughs> actually, the business ang- angle came from our sales agent. My producer's yeah. rep, Irvin Shapiro, mm-hmm. of films around the world. He was the man who um, he taught me the business. Everything. Yeah, he yeah. taught me the business. He uh-huh. taught me the deals to make. You know what to look for. You know, uh, and he really mentored me as far as the business end of it is uh, went. He also represented me on on Vigilante. Well, let's talk a little about the reaction. Maniac is a very hard-hitting film and a very gruesome film. And Tom Savini was involved in the creation of the makeup effects and the like. So let's talk about the reaction because this is the kind of film that sort of baits an audience in a way. Yes, and I think it baited the uh, protesters by that ad of the guy – standing in a pool of blood, holding a woman's scalp and a knife, and clearly he has an erection in his pants. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that, if you were ever going to have a poster that depicted everything that that, uh, was uh, politically incorrect, it would be maniac. It would be, it was probably so politically incorrect that it actually became, almost satirized it. Right, right. To some degree. Um, But yeah, we had protesters uh, you know, we, Siskel and Ebert, especially Gene Siskel, he was he was hot and heavy on it. Uh, and we had Philadelphia, Los Angeles, uh, you name it. We had we had protesters. Right. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, we're throwing around ketchup. And there was a yeah. woman who stood in front of the Hollywood Boulevard Theater and holding up the ad for the movie. Have, holding a press conference, hadn't seen the movie, but was holding up the ad, exclaiming that this is a movie that shows how women are stalked and killed every day, and uh, and and doing it, you know, with such passion. A year later, I'm watching TV, and she's being arrested for being an accomplice to a murder. Oh my goodness! So I say, you know, it's like, it, it, you know, it's weird, you know. A well, how do you of, feel about how do you feel about the film now? I mean, if you were making a movie now, uh, how would you approach it in the same way? I mean, it was meant to push buttons. Well, yes, it definitely was meant to push buttons. But you know, I I had low self esteem as a filmmaker. Mm. I suffered from that. I really thought I wasn't good enough. I didn't think I, you know, I really, I always, I always felt as though. You know, that uh, I, I responded more to negativity than I did to positive. Mm. You know, I really I really kind of looked at the movie as being, well, I got away with it. Maybe there was something. Who knows? And when people would say positive things, I would be very reluctant to kind of buy into it. Yeah, It wasn't until doing this new 4K restoration mm-hmm. where I had to sit and watch the movie multiple times this past summer. That I'm looking at it from a distance and I'm going, you know, this isn't too bad. <laughs> I go, God, I mean, I was, I, I thought to myself, at tw- I, you know, where did I know how to do this? My coverage, right. the coverage that I did. The some technical of the ca- filmmaking Yeah, itself. the technical yeah. filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I'm going, this is pretty sophisticated, you know. It's the, mm-hmm. Thinking about all the low-budget movies that I watch at the festivals and stuff. I say, you know, this has got something. And Joe's performance is really haunting. It's memorable. It's and, iconic. Yeah. Yes, and I'm watching it, but I'm watching it from a distance. It was like as though mm-hmm. it wasn't me. 
Right. So you're seeing it 30 years later as um, 40 years later, 48 years, years later, yeah, to be right. precise. Yeah. 38 years later. Um, and and feeling like it was somebody entirely other than you had made this movie. Well, I remember making it. I don't want to get that. But it was it was it was just that I'm watching it and I'm, and I'm able to look at it somewhat objectively. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, this isn't bad. I go, yeah, that was weak there. And, you know, but I'm watching it. I'm going, this isn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I really thought I made a disaster. I came back from watching the answer print, uh, the final answer print. I remember saying to Andy Garrardi, my producing partner, I fucked up. This wasn't, this is no good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, this is, you know. Well, the success of it helps yeah. have those wounds for a while. It did. Um, so what do you feel about the remake that Frank did? Um, well, um, how I felt about it was, number one, I was surprised that they wanted to remake it. Right. That was that was very, that was interesting that they wanted to remake When they first called me, the French producer called me, Tomas Slangman, I thought he was calling about Maniac Cop, not Maniac. Ah, okay. They just, like his secretary shortened it or something. <laughs> and, um, but it was, you know, he did want to do a remake of Maniac, um, mostly because Alex Azure wanted to. Right. And, um, but I, he ended up producing, not he directing did. it. He yeah. produced it. It was always he was going to produce it. I see. And, um, and uh, uh, what I felt about it was when they engaged Elijah to be in the movie. Um, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. Uh, I thought they were going to toss out the POV idea because uh-huh. it was in the script. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't think you would hire Elijah Wood and not see him right. for most of the movie. And I felt as though that it was a mistake. I think... They thought at some point it was a mistake because they switched mm. suddenly from it not being a POV right. to suddenly you're able to see him more. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was on set. The, it wasn't done for economy. He was on set the entire time, even if he wasn't shown. Well, it was his production company, wasn't No, it wasn't. It? Oh, it wasn't no, Spectre no, no, Vision. It was, oh, okay. it was, no, no, it was yeah. uh, Tomas Langman. Okay. So funny because Tomas Langman, that same year that he was producing Maniac, was was accepting the Oscar for Best Picture for the artist. <laughs> There's How a contrast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, Elijah would do his hands, mm-hmm. things like that. That I go, why have Elijah Wood and you're not? Seeing, He's a committed actor. You're not seeing yeah. his eyes. Yeah. I mean, that's where the movie is—is is in the actor's eyes. Yeah. And. Um, you know, so there were things like that. I also felt that uh, that the film did not benefit from shooting in L.A. Mm. It just looked too safe. Too clean and safe. Too and clean and orderly. safe. Yeah. I mean, the subway looked like it could eat off of the floors. I mean, it was so <laughs> clean. And, 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 so New York was a major part of, oh, that, yeah. of the original film. Well, I mean, what they, what they failed – look – no one ever sat down with me to really ask me my thoughts on Maniac. What mm-hmm. were my thoughts on this scene and that? I think I could have offered them insight into my thinking, whether they accepted it or not, you know, is another thing. But they never did. And they just went off and made the movie. And all they did was send me periodic- periodically drafts of the script. Right. And a check. Well, yes. <laughs> That's the nice yeah. part of the remake. Oh, yeah. So That's the part that warmed my heart. <laughs> uh, nobody can see the smile on your face right yeah. now. It's rather beaming. Uh, 
So, uh, but New York has very much been a part of not only your life as a human being, but also your life in the cinema. Uh, I mean, Vigilante was next. How did, how did that? How did you go from Maniac to Vigilante as your second? Well, I was always a fan of. Um, of urban retribution films, right. like Death Wish, that which started you with really on. with Death Wish. Well, yeah. yeah, but it was sinking daily as a PA, exactly. yeah. but still, uh, I did have to steal the, the the dining room chairs from the set. But that's another story <laughs> to put in Pete's office. Okay. Anyway, of the uh, I I really uh, loved urban retribution films, and particularly I loved the films that were made by Enzo Castellari and um, and um, uh, um, there was Martino. Uh, Umberto Lenzi. Mm-hmm. They were making these really wild uh, street movies. Italians making American gritty. Exactly. They were movies. doing yeah. Dirty Harry, French Connection right. mashups with a, sometimes a sprinkling of Serpico. Right. And uh, I love those movies. And they only played for like one week on 42nd Street. They, right. they would be in and out and gone. And um, But I, I just loved them. Plus, I was a big Spaghetti Western fan. Yeah. Big Sergio Leone, to me, is God. Did those play at that Western Theater on uh, uh, oh, yeah. Times Square? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they played the Italian. The oh, more. absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. where I even saw the, 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 the Tony Anthony films, right. you know, the, the Stranger mm-hmm. character. All those films uh, were playing over there. So um, that inspired you? Oh, nothing like Sergio Leone. I thought Sergio Leone... I, 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 there was nobody in, who who, who uh, compared to him. Mm-hmm. He was just. I still watch his movies in awe. Yeah. At how perfect they are. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, so when I was doing uh, uh, Vigilante, I intended it to be an urban spaghetti western. Uh-huh. And in fact, in the script, you record the dialogue later. <laughs> not 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 technically. Yes. But uh, things like, for instance, I even wrote in the script one of the characters should be played by Woody Strode, and I got uh, Woody Strode because nice. of Once Upon a Time in the West. Right. And uh, I I uh, the music was very inspired by the 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 Marconi scores, and the look and the compositions. I shot the film in scope. One of the reasons I shot Vigilante and Scope is every time I go to see Maniac in some downtown grindhouse, you know, one of these big cavernous theaters, there was Maniac and uh, looking like a little postage stamp in the middle of the screen. And suddenly the, the second feature, some Hong Kong move, a kung fu movie, the screen would open up the oh, scope yes. for them. And I'd feel, you know, that size mattered. So I had to have... <laughs> well, the excitement of an opening screen yeah. is really great. Yeah, and I, I said, okay, Vigilante Cinemascope. I'm going to yeah. shoot it. In, I'm going <laughs> to shoot it in scope. And, and I tried to compose the shots as much as I could in the style of what I of the spaghetti westerns and i tried to take a kind of spaghetti western approach to it um where uh, and and that was that was my 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 thinking on it and that film was again very successful yeah very successful well next up was your your first um franchise uh i know it probably wasn't intended to be but larry cohen wrote the script for maniac cop and tell me how that that came into life well it came about because I did not want to leave New York and come to L.A. And he's another quintessential New York. He is. Yeah. He is. And um, I did not want to leave New York, come to L.A. and and pursue a career. I never wanted an agent. I never got an agent. I always felt like I, I wanted to stay away from Hollywood. I always considered you guys out here in L.A. <laughs> to be all phonies and, 
You know, I just oh, never wanted. I, I just happened it. to be born here. And I, yeah, I know, but I, <laughs> you know, the sunshine got to me, and I really did not want to leave New York. Despite but, you living here now, we'll yes. leave that aside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the fact is, um, what I what I came to realize is. Movies got generated in California at yeah. the time. They weren't being generated in New York. And I wasted a lot of time and a lot of, uh, I would say, career capital deciding to stay in New York to the point where maybe I was unemployable I um, uh, and unfinanceable because I, uh, so many years had passed since I had done Vigilante. And it, uh, I had completed Vigilante and released it in 83 and it was now um, 80, early 87. And for four years, I hadn't made a movie. Mm-hmm. And that's deadly, as you know, in this business. I do. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're basically retired and don't know it yet. Uh, yeah. You're so, the only one who hasn't found out. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, uh, Larry, it was, it was February, snowy February day. Larry had just been fired from a movie mm-hmm. um, that he was shooting in New York. I was closing up my New York apartment. Oh, that was I the Jury, I assume. Yeah. It wasn't I the Jury. It was the one with uh, Billy D. Williams. Oh, yeah. It was I, a good, I, actually. Yeah, pretty, I know it was a detective movie. Yeah. And it, um, I forget. Yeah, this was that. after I the Jury. Okay. And um, uh, so anyway, so uh, Larry uh, meets my Uncle Jake for some reason. I, uh, maybe he was trying to put together. Oh, I know what it was. He was trying to put together the ambulance, which oh, came yes. together many years later. Right. But he was trying to put it together at that time. And he brought mm-hmm. my uncle, the casting person brought my uncle in. Um, Larry, I had known Larry. Um, I had met Larry. And my name came up. And, uh, and uh, so Larry gives me a call. What are you doing? Let's have lunch. We're having lunch. Subject, subject of Maniac came up. Why didn't you ever do a sequel to Maniac. I said, I just never thought the, the, it could be sequelized. It right, just, to right. me, it was a one-off movie. And we were talking, and, you know, at the time, there was the success of Beverly Hills Cop, RoboCop, yeah, yeah. all these things, and Larry blurts out, what about Maniac Cop? <laughs> and I go, oh, shit, that sounds great. <laughs> yes. And then by the end of the lunch... We had come up with the copy line, you have the right to remain silent forever. <laughs> a classic. So with the title and the copy line, I knew we had a movie. This is February. We, we, we decided that at some point in the movie, there would be a St. Patrick's Day parade worked in. Because if you're doing a movie about cops in New York, there's got to be a St. Patrick's Day parade scene. As there was in God, God Told, told me, me To. Which exactly. Classically, yes. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I'm in New York. And uh, uh, Sam Raimi is in New York waiting for the financing on Darkman. Wow. So we're hanging out and, uh, uh, and, and I decide I'm going I'm to go out and rent some cameras and we'll shoot the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I give Bruce Campbell a call. I say, Bruce, I'm making a movie called Maniac Cop. I don't have a script. But if you want to be in it, I need you to come to New York for for the, you know to be in the St. Patrick's Day parade scenes, and wear clothes that we can later duplicate. <laughs> so we pull together. We have a couple of cameras. One crew is is Sam. The other crew is with me, and we have a van. So Sam was second uniting. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh wow. yeah! He was out yeah. doing second unit, and he also played the newsman, uh-huh, Larry yeah. Cohen. 
sent uh, 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 faxed over some script pages for a news reporter to stand in front of the parade. So Sam played the news reporter. He's reading a script referring to characters that had yet to be written <laughs> in a script. And, uh, and we shot the St. Patrick's Day parade. Amazing. So now I have a title, I have a copy line, and I have St. Patrick's Day footage. And I got Bruce Campbell in the movie. And uh, I, 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 I try to get financing for the film. I go around to a few people that I know. One of them was Jim Glickenhaus. Uh-huh. And uh, Jim Glickenhaus uh, basically said... Who had uh, directed The Exterminator. He had directed yeah. The Exterminator. We also shared an office together prior to my getting together with him. Mm-hmm. We had shared an office from the early 80s to the mid-80s uh, at uh, 1519 Broadway, the Brill Building. Yeah. And, um, the songwriter building. Exactly. Yeah. It was fun. Uh, uh, so I go to him. And uh, he's telling me about how much money he's making and blah, 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 blah. And I say, all right. You know, uh, I tell him, uh, you know, I I bitch and moan. You know, he tells actually what it was. He asked how I was doing. And I said, well, you know, Jim, if you give me a million dollars of all the money you're you're making, you know, I'd be a very happy guy. He goes, oh, I'll give you a million dollars to go make a movie. Because he knew it was four years since I had made my last film. Right. And I said, and I said, okay, how about we make Baniac Cop? I don't think he ever read the script. <laughs> it was just a thing. He heard the title. He had the money. <laughs> and I think sharing offices with me, I think he had confidence yeah. that I wasn't going to go out and blow it. Right. And um, so uh, I was very grateful, and he had formed Shapiro Glickenhaus, and right. we went out and made the movie. With Lenny Shapiro, yeah. who I worked with at uh, Avco Embassy mm-hmm. on the, the fog and scanners and all those things. And now Lenny has been a part of Nightmare Cinema as well. Great. So, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. He's, a, he's a character. He's, he's a, a character. total character. Yeah, <laughs> he's a character, but... Um, I mean, he was insistent. Oh, I hate that title, Maniac. Everyone loves Maniac Cop, except Lenny Shapiro. I hate that title. It sounds so, I think he used the word down market. It sounds down market. (laughs) As opposed to the other stuff he was producing. Right, exactly. (laughs) It sounds so down market. He he actually had me put in the agreement that he had the right to change the title. Aye, aye, aye. Oh, thank goodness he didn't. Oh, fortunate. But it it was... uh, yeah, so we made the picture. We made it for just over a million dollars and came in at about a million two something. And it was very successful for everyone involved. And spawned a couple of sequels. It did. And it, it, we made some sequels. And uh, so before we get to the Blue Underground part of your life, mm-hmm. I do want to go touch on Relentless, which is kind of your most Hollywood movie and has a screenwriter going by a different name. Yes. So Phil Alden Robinson Phil wrote Alden. Fields of Dream, Field of Dreams. What happened was I met a guy in Lenny Shapiro's office named Howard Smith. And he had worked at AFCO Embassy. He had done The, the Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. Oh, One yeah. One of those I song remember. movies. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he had uh, some scripts that AFCO had commissioned but never produced. One of them was a movie called, uh, a script called Sunset Killer. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, by Phil Alden Robinson, and uh, so I read the script, really liked it, and um, uh, uh, brought it to Shapiro Glickenhaus. They passed, brought it to Cinetel, who I just did a movie called Hit List for, right. and they and they acquired it 
that day. And, wow. uh, and we went off and made the movie. And it was one of the easiest movies I ever made. Uh, all the money is in the bank. Right. Uh, the producers, because... You didn't have to do it a piece at a time. <laughs> it was great. The producers who had worked with me before had confidence. So it was really... I, there, was, there was no suits on the set. Mm. It was just make the movie. They just trusted you. They trusted me. Make the movie. We'll come. We'll come watch dailies occasionally, and show us then the finished film. And it's a Brat Packer. You had Judd Nelson. I had Judd Nelson, yeah. who was a big fan of Maniac. Oh, how when great! I, when I went to see again, Maniac is a double-edged sword. There are some people that perceive the film as being a negative. Mm-hmm. Some of whom might have seen it. Some of many of whom didn't see it and knew it by reputation. By reputation. But Judd had seen the film and, unbeknownst to me, was friendly with Joe Spinell. Ah. He had met Joe in a, in a bar or something, and they, they became pals. I didn't know. And, uh, and uh, so when I met with him, uh, he was all excited about doing it. He was, again, he was like Joe Spinell. He was totally gung-ho. Wow. What, you want, what do you want me to do? Let's, let's make this movie. And let's... Well, a real change of career for him as well. It was, an, yeah. it was a complete change of his career. Yeah. And um, it, was, uh, it was a real, real good experience. It was, I, I, I can't say enough. It was, it was just one of those dream things. Everything fell into place. You know, we made the picture. It was... On budget, on time. It nice. was, you know, it was like one of these things, you know, the, the actors were all supportive. Even a veteran like Robert Lozier. Oh, yeah. I was ahead of, one day I was ahead of schedule and I said, shit, we can, we can shoot such and such scene. We can maybe shoot it here at this location instead of the other location right. and get ahead of schedule. And, but Robert Lozier would have to come in on his day off. Right. Call him up. Man comes in on his day off. That was, that was, that was the beauty of making that picture. Everyone was there to, to, to do their best. Now, why isn't the screenplay credited to Robinson? It was done under the under the WGA low-budget agreement, uh, and Phil Alden Robinson had become a major Hollywood screenwriter at that point. That's for Field sure. of Dreams had just been released, yeah. and he was getting big money to, to do scripts, and he didn't want to be associated with a low-budget movie. With an indie, yeah. Yeah, with a low-budget indie film yeah you know uh, it wasn't anything that he had seen the film and took his name off it was already predetermined right. that he wasn't going to put his name on it which was his right to do under the low budget contract got it well let's talk about what you've been doing for the last couple of decades um whereas you've always been a fan of italian movies particularly as well as other independent movies and now first with anchor bay and now with your own label blue underground you're able to restore these movies, including your own, mm-hmm. to unbelievable high quality and add all of these extras. Tell me how that became your your line of work. Well, I never, I never sat down and made a conscious decision decision to uh, change my my career. Mm-hmm. I thought of myself as a director, but suddenly my hobby, which was acquiring and restoring movies and putting them out on Laserdisc in the 90s, um, I suddenly, uh, this thing called DVD comes along. Uh-huh. And uh, and uh, it became uh, an instant success DVD. And so um, I uh, 
I just started taking it more seriously. I, I invested money in it. I, you can get I, a higher quality image on video than exactly. you would with VHS or laser or LaserDisc. Yeah. And uh, so I was acquiring things like my first major acquisition was acquiring 22 Hammer films. Wow, yes. And um, that, again, was totally by luck. That's another story in itself. But it was, um, it was, it was just – it started to snowball. And then it became a real business uh, where I had employees mm-hmm. and responsibility, and uh, and uh, and and I and I had a steady income, right? Versus when you're working hand to mouth as right. as a director, there's hot and cold periods. Oh yeah, yeah. I've had both, <laughs> yeah. and it's 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 tough. And there here you're in control of your own destiny too, and you're working with. I mean, you've restored and worked a lot with Dario Argento's films and some of your heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to be Christopher Lee. I mean, all these things I would have never had the opportunity to do uh, if I hadn't been doing this work. I met so many people, um, who uh, some of whom I became friendly with, um, and it was it was really a. An amazing, it's been an amazing thing. Even now, it's still amazing to me. Well, what's the philosophy of Blue Underground as a company? Philosophy of Blue Underground is, number one, I, I want to put out movies that I feel good about. Movies right. that I, 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 I are not just simply for commercial reasons, but movies that I genuinely feel should be discovered. Now, I haven't been able to do that in recent years because I basically put out all those movies early on. Right now, it's just remastering. <laughs> you blew your wad. <laughs> I did. I effectively did, and so now it's just going back and and doing improved masters. Of and you've those got movies. Blu-ray. What you had done DVD before exactly. Blu-ray is even more spectacular. Exactly, and now you have a UHD. That's right, four K. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, there's Blu-ray. there's a lot of improvements to be made on the library. But my initial thing was to really put out movies that I cared about. I, I kind of thought of of Blue Underground as uh, being a company for adventurous movie watchers. And what's the meaning of the of the name? Blue well, Underground? the name comes from uh, it's actually David Gregory's ah, name. He, okay. he well, I had a different name that I wanted to call the company. But when we went to register the corporation, it turned out there was a conflict. Uh-huh. And I needed to get the corporation registered. There was some pressure on me to do it. And so uh, David picked uh, Blue for Blue Velvet, one mm-hmm. of his favorite movies. And Underground uh, for Velvet Underground, his favorite band. Okay. And I say, great, let's go with it. So you just agreed to it for your company. Well, it just sounded good. It's a good name. It's a it's good a- name. It sounded good. And, I, I, you know, and-, and it feels a little subversive. Yes, that's what we wanted. Yeah. We definitely wanted. In fact, it, it, <laughs> that's, again, been a little bit of a double-edged sword. But I, uh, a few years into the company, I applied for an SBA loan, mm-hmm. Small Business Administration loan. Right. And <laughs> there was a delay and they're in getting the approval from them. And I later found out it was because they wanted to be sure I wasn't a porno company. <laughs> Interesting, because you started that way. Yes. <laughs> but they but they wanted it they they want they, they had to vet me to make sure that I wasn't some, you know, Southern California porno company. Well, blue that was gonna cause them an embarrassment. That. Yes, exactly. So what are the crown jewels you think of, of Blue Underground? Well, 
I, well, right now, I would say uh, Zombie, the new Zombie 4K oh, wow. that we have is, just looks stunning. So this is the Fulci movie. This is the Fulci movie. Originally Zombie 2. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Um, and um, let's see. Final Countdown is a movie oh. that I always loved. And it's turned out to be a big success for our company. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm anxious to get my hands on the original negative to do a, um, uh, a 4K of Final Countdown. I hope next year to be able to do that. And all of the Dario movies. Are all the just Dario films, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy about. Um, Dead and Buried, Gary Sherman's yeah, Dead and Buried. That's a beauty. It's a really, really good movie. Another Avco Embassy picture. Yeah, yeah. And very creepy film. It is. I like that film. And that uh, was Dan O'Bannon the writer. Yes, on that? yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And Maniac. Well, I can't. I can't call it a crown jewel. Well, of course you can. It's That's my your movie. baby from beginning to end. Yes, it's my baby from beginning. To end. You know, I got. I got to downplay calling it a crown jewel. You know, you can ask me about my company. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll call it. Your All right. Jewel. That's fair enough. All right. Well, listen, Bill. This has just been a great conversation, and thank you so much for being a part of it. Because this is a part of the business that we haven't had many opportunities to talk about, and you have so many insights to this. Mick, it's uh, it's been fun. Um, I hope I could offer, you know, some. All I could say is this: if it, if somebody like me could succeed in this business, anybody can. So <laughs> let's, I mean, that, let's that, not have that low self esteem here. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> let's let's you know just telling you that you know any aspiring filmmakers listening to this, quit school if you're in film school and go out and and make a movie. That's that's it. It's all. Well, you are the king of 42nd Street and (laughs) now overtaking uh, Hollywood with Blue Underground. Anyway, Bill, thanks a lot. It's been a total pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Mick. Okay. Hey, everyone. It's Joe Russo, Nick's postmortem producing partner, here to tell you about our special Halloween giveaway. Our friends at Paramount Pictures have given us voodoo promo codes so four randomly selected winners can watch the 50th anniversary release of the horror classic Rosemary's Baby for free. All you have to do is find us on Twitter at PostmortemMG or on Instagram at PostmortemGram. Look for our Rosemary's Baby contest post and reply, Rosemary. Don't miss your chance to catch the digital re-release of Rosemary's Baby for its 50th anniversary for free. And happy Halloween from all of us at Postmortem. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.